Welcome to the Every Nation Rosebank Church Podcast. At our church, we honor God, make disciples, and transform nations. For more information about our church, visit everynationrosebank.org and don't forget to subscribe. Amen. So um, we are in the fifth week of our Abide series. Who's been enjoying it so far? Fantastic, yes, okay. Now, who feels like they've been reading their Bible a little more? No, but yeah, oh, there we go, yes. That is the point of this series. Can you see the subtitle there? The power and beauty of what? God's Word. This is what we have to abide in. And I'm so blessed tonight because um, uh, I wasn't actually going to preach this week. Uh, I stepped in for Pastor Simon, Pastor Rogers preaching next week. But I'm so excited because I get to talk from the chapter that actually has the whole basis of abide in it. And that's John chapter 15. But before we get there, I, I wanted to just really be honest and real with you tonight, okay? So I've been a Christian for 35 years. Yeah. Born again, loving Jesus. Yeah, that, it's the Lord. It's the Lord. The only reason I'm here is because of God. Um, Lareka was, 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 was teaching from one of my favorite scriptures. Where else can we go? You have the words of life. Well, there's so many times in my walk as a Christian that I wanted to leave. Um, if, you're, if you've never wanted to leave, you need to go to ask God what's going on. <laughs> because if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, it's hard. You have to fight your own self the entire way. That's difficult. That is not easy. You know, when people say religion is a crutch, I'm going, well, religion might be, but life in Jesus is hard. You need some crutches sometimes when you're having your life in Jesus. And I'm a pastor. I've, I've been ordained as a pastor. But what I want to tell you tonight is, is that before anything, I am a Christian. I am a child of God, just like everybody. That's the point. I might have a unique calling to full-time ministry. You have unique callings to everything that's going on in your life. But every single process a Christian has to go through to serve Jesus, to be born again, to live like a Christian, I have to do exactly the same thing. And it's hard. It is hard. It's difficult. I've been doing it for 35 years, and so a lot of it has become habit to me. And that's a good thing. But recently, a couple of years ago, the Lord actually challenged me and he said, Greg, it's great that you've got good habits, but remember the point is knowing me. Remember what you're actually about. And so sometimes we think we're holy and we're pure because, you know, we, we have no habits of going to strip clubs. We have no habits of taking drugs. We have no habits of getting drunk by ourselves at home, and we think we're great. Those are good habits. Please, please practice those habits. But the point is knowing Jesus. The point is living in the life of Jesus. And that's everything that the scripture we're going to read about tonight actually tells us. And so everything I'm telling you is that I'm, I'm, a, I'm a strong Christian for 35 years. I've been discipled well. I'm a pastor. I move in the things of the Holy Spirit. But I want to tell you tonight that my life is not perfect. Anybody else in the Not Perfect Life Club? Anybody else? Okay, wow. Whew, I feel so much better. My life is not perfect. There are so many things in my life that I wish weren't there. And there are so many things that I feel I want in my life that just have not come. 
Do you understand that that is actually exactly how it should be for us as Christians? We get hungry, we get thirsty, and I'm talking symbolically as well. We have needs that we want to meet, and sometimes we feel like Jesus isn't meeting them. Sometimes he isn't. That's not the issue. The issue is where am I going to position myself in that moment? It's hard being a Christian. It's good. It's absolutely worth it. But it's hard. And just like you, I have to repent of my sin. I have to confess my sin. I have to first acknowledge that there is sin. I have to confess it. I have to repent of it. I have to allow the Lord to come and sanctify me and heal me and deliver me. And that's a daily process for us. I know some people in this church who maybe it's only every third day. That's what I'm aspiring to. But if you think of the best Christian in the world, I'm telling you right now, twice a week they have to do the same thing. And if they're not doing it, watch how it crashes and burns very soon. This is our life in Jesus. Perfection is not the goal. And so this scripture that we're going to read tonight, it's beautiful, it's amazing, it's so full of life. It also brings up a whole lot of problems. <laughs> I grew up in this beautiful little Baptist church. I really loved it. They taught me a passion for God's word. They taught me a fear of God and a desire for his word. They really did. But <laughs> I very soon found out if that something wasn't going quite right in my life, <laughs> if I was struggling with sin or doubt or fear or, or, or some kind of unbelief or depression or whatever, and if I dared utter that to anybody, they would quote a scripture to me. <laughs> rejoice. And again, I say rejoice. <laughs> and if I couldn't take that scripture and make myself better, there was something wrong with me. Maybe I had a demon. Maybe I wasn't really born again. But the, there was a problem. If I couldn't just take rejoice and rejoice always and make my life better, there was something wrong with me. And at 10 years old, as a Baptist, I also knew that there was a difference between joy and happiness. Because <laughs> they taught us that kind of thing in Sunday school. We got theological training. It was awesome. But I, I was taught so well that I actually believed that being happy meant I was in sin. <laughs> and then this problem started happening in my life. If I, what on earth should I do if I couldn't find joy? If I couldn't find God's joy, if I couldn't find any kind of joy, what on earth was I supposed to do? And so joy became a problem in my life. And I think it's still a problem in my life. You know, my two biggest problems in my Christian walk have been believing that God loves me with all his heart, just like he says he does. And I've realized as I was reading the scripture this week, it's also been this joy thing. So that's a picture of, of a character from the SNL cast from, from way back in the day. And it's one of the male actors is dressed up like church lady. And church lady is very judgmental, and she's super passive-aggressive. And one of my favorite scenes, because, you know, every, every so often church lady would pop up and they would do a skit with church lady. And one of my favorite scenes was when the pastor, the long-suffering pastor of her church, um, is trying to hide from her the fact that he's going on leave. <laughs> 
It's been six years, Lorico, six years, and he hasn't had leave. Who knows that poor pastor needs some leave? And he's trying to dodge all her questions, and eventually he has to admit to her, I'm going on holiday for a month. And she pulls out her, her catchphrase, and she's like, well, ain't that special? Neglecting the fields of the Lord. And she makes him feel absolutely awful. She robs him of all his joy. Maybe some of you are sitting here and you're going, joy is a problem? What? Look, if that is you, praise God. Be thankful. Be grateful. Don't switch off tonight because there's something for you here as well. So let's read this, this passage together. You can follow in your Bibles. It will be on the screen. John chapter 15. We're going to read from 1 to 11. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands, sorry, commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So Jesus is talking to us about abiding in him and him abiding in us. And can you see everywhere through that scripture, it starts with us. And then he abides. We abide and then he abides. He talks about pruning. He talks about loving God through obedience, which makes us fruitful and glorifies God. He talks about abiding in his love. And then he anchors that entire section with verse 11. See, the point of abiding, the point of everything he's saying is that his joy will be in us and that our joy will be full. Now, when the Bible uses extreme terms like full, complete, it literally means that. When we use the word full, we've got like some kind of weird <laughs> sliding scale. <laughs> It's not what, when Jesus says the word full, he means full. Full, full, full. No more space for anything else. See the problem of joy. Jesus tells us about abiding in love, in obedience, abiding to grow fruit that God might be glorified. But he tells us that all of this is for the sake of our joy. So let's look at the problem of joy again. You see, every single one of us in this room right now has a default system, has a default programming. 
And from a sliding scale of not aware at all to fully and completely aware, we wake up every morning and our heart starts from our default program. There's some idea, some set of beliefs, some self-concept that is your default mode. Negative thoughts. Things other people have said to us that make us feel not good enough. They make us feel like we shouldn't try. They make us feel like we're not going to achieve what we want to achieve. <laughs> the thing I'm most guilty of is my own very negative, violent, and abusive thoughts that I inflict myself with every day. And I think there's so many of you in the room who do the same thing. And of course, there's a real enemy out there, and he loves to tell us we're not good enough. And he gives us a whole lot of negative thoughts. Sometimes we blame him for things he didn't do, because we're doing his job for him. Think about that for a minute. And so this default problem, this default setting, this this default programming comes throughout our lives. You know, as kids, we grow up in our family of origin, and we, we watch what they do, we listen to what they say, we learn how to react to the world from our family. We get a little older and we go to school and we're playing with other kids and teachers and suddenly there's more things that we're watching and learning and growing from. We become teenagers. <laughs> And our peers and our heroes start telling us how we have to be, act to be accepted. Start telling us what we have to look like to be beautiful. Start showing us what it is to be somebody that matters. At that age, we're desperately trying to fit in. And so we embrace a whole lot of default programming without assessing whether it's good, bad, whether it's going to help us or not. Later on in our young adult years, our own experiences begin to dictate a default program to us. We start to think we are successful, or we start to think we're worthless and useless and unlovable. And so it goes. And so sometimes, even when our default program seems good, we have to assess what it is and where it's coming from. Your self-concept is what you live in daily. It is the default setting of your, that, that your heart starts from every single morning. And you see, what's happening in this scripture, what's happening in John 15, is that Jesus is telling us that we need to move away from our default program, from our default setting. He's saying that we, we, we can't live automatically anymore. He's saying, come and live in my default programming. This entire Abide series has been about us understanding God's worldview. This is what the Word of God is. It's God's worldview. He's saying, come and live in my worldview. Come and live in my words. Come and live in my ways. Come and live in my understanding. See everything the way I see it. And I will give you a new default setting. And that default setting includes joy. Joy is one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. You can go check them all out in Galatians. Actually, let's do what Pastor Sai did this morning. Shout out all the fruits you know. Self-control, somebody said it, yes. Absolutely. So that is the default setting of our hearts. That's what it should be. 
So when I say the problem of joy, I really mean the problem of all the fruits of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and this phrase, we're going to repeat this tonight. Jesus wants us to abide in him for the sake of our joy. Abiding in him is absolutely essential if we're going to solve the problem of joy. And, and joy is not easy. This is not easy. Oh, my word. To be truly joyful, to live in the fullness of joy, is going to require so much from us. Literally everything. Jesus wants us to abide in him for the sake of our joy. Now, I have figured out <laughs> that joy is not perfection or some state of being where you transcend human realities and nothing phases you. So one afternoon, you're taking your walk and your neighbor's dog attacks you. It's a pit bull, by the way. It attacks you and starts chewing off your foot. <laughs> joy is not this thing where you just sit there and go and you start forgiving him before he's even done. And then once it's off, you jump up and you start hopping off with so much faith that everything's going to be okay, that the Lord will be provided, that it's going to be amazing, and you're going to have such great lessons and stories to tell next time you preach. That is not what joy looks like. That's just fake and delusional. And so we've got to get rid of this idea that joy is, looks like something. Joy is spiritual. It comes from heaven, but it activates in humanity. And so there's something profoundly practical about joy. And so this is what I believe it's going to come up on the screen, that joy is an attitude that helps us live through the darkest times of our lives. It is an attitude that helps us live through the darkest of times. It doesn't make the darkness bright and Disney-like. It doesn't take difficult times away. But it gives us something that brings us through. It's an attitude that just lets you find some kind of hope, some kind of gratitude. You know, we all think that the heroes of the faith, like Moses just slammed his staff into the ground and he was like, bring it, Lord. No, go read the story. Watch his humanity. Joy is an attitude that knows everything has to end eventually. But it keeps reminding you that Jesus is the ultimate reward, and he's worth it. See, this is not satisfying, is it? But this is what joy is. Sometimes joy, for me, is just realizing how absolutely ridiculous and crazy the situation I'm facing is. And joy is me just having to laugh for the absolute ridiculousness of what's going down. Not laughing for fun. But you've got two choices. You can cry, you can laugh. But laughing because, oh my word, what the heck is going on? Sometimes for me, joy is just weeping for the pain and the frustration. But while you're doing it, suddenly you're realizing that you're not alone. That there's actually somebody who sees your tears. Psalm 56 verse 8 says, You keep track of all my sorrows. You have collected all my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one of them in your book. What is the psalmist saying? He's saying in my worst moment, when I sob my heart out for whatever human feeling I'm feeling, God comes and he records it. 
and he holds it. Why is he putting tears in a bottle? Because there's a shelf somewhere and they're going to rest there. And what is the psalmist saying? What gets me through is that I know God understands me. What gets me through is I know God knows my context backwards. We're going to make it. Sometimes this is joy. Are you realizing now that you've practiced joy way more than you thought? Are you realizing it? Are you getting it? When you laughed and cried for frustration, you were practicing joy. Now remember it, because it's going to happen again. But start realizing, this is joy. My experience of joy is that when I have actually despaired, I, I realized a few years ago that at the end of my 20s into my 30s, I suffered a real clinical depression. Nobody around me figured that out. I, I remember things that happened, and I, I work with counseling, and I, we talk about depression a lot. Some things, this revelation is, I suffered that depression. In the midst of that depression, I was suicidal. I really started liking knives. Yeah, it was real. And when I actually said to somebody, when I just said that to somebody, they started crying, and then I realized, this might not be normal. There might be something going on here. And I asked for some help, and I got some help. So I, but this is what I learned from joy in that experience, is that when I have actually despaired, and I have literally given up hope, somehow, joy brings me through. I didn't feel any joy at that moment, but that whole little scenario, that's joy. I came through. I didn't die. Now, we know the scripture so well. Nehemiah 8 verse 10 says, For the joy of the Lord is your strength. We love quoting that. It's a good scripture. Read the whole scripture. It's a long scripture. But that's the crux of it. But I've realized that this joy, this strength of joy, is not some superhero nonsense. It's not delusional and denying and just bracing, you know, um, bracing ourselves for the attack. It's not that at all. What this strength is, is just enough to take the next step. Just enough to figure out the next thing to do. And that's deeply joyful. See, we, we want to have all the answers. We want everything sorted out. When I take the first step, I must know exactly where I'm going. Maybe sometimes that will happen, but through your life, the number of seasons you're going to go through. I turned 50 last year. I've lived through way more seasons than most of you in this room. So what I know is, whatever's happening now, it's going to change. Hopefully for the better, sometimes not. <laughs> but everything is a season. Everything is a process. And so I'm not, the end for me is I'm going to see Jesus face to face. And then my life carries on forever. So when we say that the, the joy of the Lord is our strength, we've got to stop being weird about it. What's the next step? What is just required of me? How do I change my attitude, my thinking, my heart? I think that joy is an attitude of the heart that helps us find true perspective when life is blurry. It helps us just to remember what we're actually looking for. And Jesus is telling us in John 15 that we can move away from the default programming the world and our own experiences have formed in us to the default programming of him, of who he is, which includes joy. 
Joy is difficult. It's a hard thing. It's very hard to go after joy when you're in the worst moment of your life. But you can. But for the sake of your joy, we have to abide in him. So what does abide actually mean? Well, uh, whenever I use the word abide, I remember the English word abode. <laughs> you live in an abode. It's your home. An abode is your home. So I always just thought it was a place you live. That's what I thought abide meant, to just live with. But when I actually looked at the English word, and I haven't done any exegesis of Greek or Hebrew words, I've just looked at the English. This is what it says, to remain or to continue. Pastor Oreko did such a good job of, of reminding you of that story when Jesus gave a really hard truth, and he said, unless you eat my flesh or drink my blood, you will have no part in me. And they canceled him. It wasn't like they went away for an afternoon. They canceled him. There was just like a little bit of paper fluttering and silence. They went. But if we're going to abide, we've got to remain. We've got to continue. Yes, it means to dwell, to reside, to live in. Absolutely it does. But here's where abiding begins to shape our joy. To endure. To be sustained. To withstand without yielding or submitting. Joy is hard. Abiding is kind of hard. See, abiding requires a perseverance. It requires a tenacity. It requires a decision that isn't going to change. It requires what those people who left Jesus didn't have. Staying power. Yeah. Abiding is eternal. We abide in him forever. Praise God we get to a point where we just get to dwell, reside, and live in him. Yeah. That's the reward. Between now and that point, we better learn how to remain and continue. We better be willing to endure, to be sustained. We better be willing to um, withstand without yielding or submitting. So let's discuss two things that are required for us to abide in Jesus. The first one is, for the sake of your joy, be pruned. So there's this fascinating thing that happens just after you turn 50 um, where you get really excited because you now have a beautiful picture of shears that you can use. And so you find really big shears that you're going to call the shears of God. And you wash them and you put them in a bag and you leave it at your door. And then you get to church and you realize they're still at the door. So tonight when I go home, they will be happily waiting at the door. This happens a lot after you're 50, so get ready for that. Um, but <laughs> John 15 verse 2 says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may be more fruitful. And so Jesus in this passage of Scripture is creating this absolutely beautiful picture. It's really a vivid picture. We are like sticks lying on the ground. We are branches that have fall, fallen off the tree. We are dried up. We have no value. <laughs> but our loving Father, the good gardener, the good vine dresser, He comes and He picks us up in our dried up, withered and useless state. And what does he do? He cuts into the vine and he plants us back in there. Remember, we are dried up, withered, and useless. But he puts us into the living, living, living Jesus. 
He does this so that we will become green and full of life. And the ultimate point of this is that we will be so nourished, so refreshed from the vine that we will begin to grow fruit. Big, fat, juicy grapes. I hope those are those candy floss grapes. But the difference between us and actual branches is this. If in nature you pick up a dead branch and you graft it into something else, it will begin to live again. But us being grafted into Jesus, we have to make a choice about whether we will live or not. Unlike natural branches, we can choose not to be nourished, not to be refreshed. We can choose to subsist on the dust of our own decisions and our self-righteousness and our own strengths and understandings because our default program robs us of joy. It robs us so of joy that when joy is offered, we can't see it. We won't take it. We'll talk about that in a moment. Deuteronomy 30, verse 15 and 19b, it's a very weird way to do it, but I didn't want to read too much scripture, says, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. What does it say? Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. It makes it very clear. It's a choice. Life is a choice. Joshua encourages the whole tribes of, of Israel to choose life because he understands with living with them for 40 years in a desert that they could very well choose death. And this is still the same choice that every single human being has to make. And yes, people, even us spiritual, tongue-praying, happy-clappy charismatics who weep during songs in worship, we could still choose life, death in an area. We are very capable of choosing death. See, if we will not bear fruit, then the vine cannot sustain us, and we will be removed. Now, here's the irony. If we do bear fruit, <laughs> the Father, the good gardener, the good vine dresser, comes and he prunes us. So here's a very hard truth. Whether you bear no fruit or you bear fruit, you will be cut. <laughs> The difference is one is kind of forever. It falls on the ground and thrown into the fire. We're not going to talk about that tonight. But why would he cut us if we're actually growing fruit? Well, as far as I understand it, with flowering plants and with fruiting plants, sometimes they get so lush and so full of leaves and greenness that that draws nutrients away from producing flowers and fruit. And so when you prune those kind of plants, like roses, for example, or pear trees, you, you, you help them focus on making fruit or flowers, the actual point of what they're there. And so this is why we get cut. Because sometimes we're so excited about being a Christian that we do 56 things that really aren't abiding. <laughs> and God wants to make sure that we keep abiding. Why? Why does God want us to abide? For the sake of our joy. And so it does make it a little bit unattractive. Here's Jesus. He's this beautiful vine. You can have all the life you want, but whether you bear fruit or not, you will be cut. Let's get grafted into him. It's like, why am I doing this again? Well, for the sake of our joy. But also because God loves you and I so, so, so much, and he created us fearfully and wonderfully. God is not remotely interested in just a little bud here or two bits of fruit there. Remember, the end of this is that his joy will be full. 
And so God wants us to be as fruitful as we can. Now, here's, here's where the problem of joy comes back. I try so hard to be fruitful. Have you ever seen a grapevine? What's your favorite fruit? Just imagine it for you. Have you ever seen it on the tree going, boom? You've never seen that in your whole life because that's not how fruit is growing. All it takes to grow fruit on a tree is to be part of the tree. The tree does all the work. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. But we get so weird. We're trying to force ourselves into fruitfulness. So we sign up for every course. We serve on every team. Then we hate God because we're exhausted and we're overwrought. And God, why do you not love me? Where is this joy? And God's going, well, you can't grow fruit by yourself. What on earth are you doing? But come and be a part of me. Come and abide in me. Persevere in me. Be a part of the tree of life that I am. And watch what happens. But you will be pruned. And I think pruning, and I, this is where I was going to snap the shears of God. <laughs> pruning is God's kindness. It's an act of love. It proves a God who is so concerned about our well-being that he'll cut us a little bit. Now, I don't like being cut. I've been cut many times. You know when you're washing dishes and you forget your knives are in there? It burns, it hurts, it's really not nice. And so pruning absolutely feels like cut, being cut, and it hurts. But the biggest reason it hurts is because we have turned the default programming on, of our lives into a protection method. We've built our identity around those things. We've believed the lie. For me, this is, you know, what, what identity should be is the truth God believes about me. What identity actually is for us as human beings is the lie I believe about myself, the lie I believe about God, the lie I believe about the world. All of us have them. It's a sliding scale of intensity. And this is why it hurts when we get pruned, because what is God cutting away? Our fakeness, our falseness, our delusion, everything that's keeping us from being who we should be. I know, because I felt this pain, and I always tease people and tell them I've got some, some burn scars on my body from where God has like, you know, dealt with me. Everybody has them. They're really in your soul. But they remind you of his love and his goodness. But I felt this pain, and what I've realized is that pain is me shattering my own idol. Woo! Go read the book of Judges. Shattering idols got you killed. Shattering idols got you dragged into the street and murdered. And so it costs when we choose to shatter our own idol. Because anything that gives us identity outside of God is an idol. There are things in our lives that can enhance our identity, can, can make it flourish, but only God gives us our identity. There are things in this world that can make us meaningful and significant, but only God gives us our identity. And this is the issue of pruning. And what I've learned is that the only pain I am feeling is God healing me. Is God having to take away my little comfort blanket so he can give me his heart, 
His life, His love. And this is what abiding is. I, you see, why would I choose death over life? Nobody in this room has ever woken up in the morning and gone, you know what, today I'm going to choose some death. Yeah, that sounds fun. Mm, here we go, death. Nobody's ever done that. But because of the default system of our mind and our heart, we refuse the nourishment of Jesus because we think we've got to do it. That is self-righteousness. You know, the two extremes of sin, well, the, the sliding scale of sin is complete depravity or utter self-reliance. They're both detestable to God. There's no space for God in either of them. But as Christians, we sanitize self-righteousness. We present it to God like it's holy, and he's going, that thing stinks. Get it away from me. And this is the issue of abiding. And so Jesus wants us to abide in him for the sake of our joy. And for the sake of our joy, we must be pruned. I don't like pruning, but I've been alive long enough, and I've been pruned enough to begin to understand. Even this week, God had to prune something in my heart. He had to prune some bad attitudes. And I didn't like it while it was happening, but guess what? Already I'm seeing fruit. There are things I thought I was sacrificing when I was 20 years old, and I wept over them, and I did the whole prophetic thing of laying them at the feet of Jesus, and I wept, and I said, goodbye, my beloved things, and I went off with Jesus. Now I'm looking at it going, what did I sacrifice? Every one of those things was death. Every one of those things was going to kill me and stab me in the middle of the, of the heart in the middle of the night. Now I'm like, Jesus, I didn't sacrifice nothing, but I got you. And I know today I have to sacrifice, and there's sacrifice coming. But I know it's not really sad. It will feel like it in the moment. Five years later, I'll be like, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> Let's, that's joy. The second thing is, for the sake of your joy, obey. Abiding looks like loving him through obedience. John 15, 67, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. You cannot abide in Jesus if you will not abide in his word. done. Jesus and I are like this. Oh, when was the last time you read your Bible? Mm, on a scripture union camp, I think. If you will not abide in his word, you cannot abide in him. He and his word are one. What Jesus is saying here is that the way you abide in me is by abiding in my word. Remember that abide means to remain, continue, to dwell, to reside, to endure, to sustain, etc., etc. Are you doing that with God's word? Are you there with God's word? See, reading your Bible is hard. We love it, but it's hard. As a pastor, as a Christian for 35 years, I know if I don't read my Bible, I will die. But reading it is hard. Research has been done that proves four times a week of reading your Bible will change your life. One, when you come to church and the pastor opens to you to, uh, asks you to open your Bible and you read it, that's one time a week. If that's all you do, nothing changes. If you do it twice a day, so once when the pastor did it and then you felt convicted in the week because you may have done something wrong, so you read it again, nothing changes. Three, there's a bit of a heartbeat. 
Something changes. Four times. Radical change. You can just go look that up. Uh, I'll, I'll look it up. It's there. Four times a day changes your life. Just go type that into Google. You'll find a whole study with lots of lots of information. Four times a week. I can do that. <laughs> Sometimes that's all I do. Is that shocking to you? <laughs> but I do that. If I can do it and I find reading my Bible hard, you can do it. Remember what we spoke about the last time I preached um, in The Word Gives Life, and I spoke to you about the fact that we love to pray the promises over ourselves, but we pay no attention to the conditions, okay? So then we're so frustrated with God because the promise hasn't come true, but God's like, the promise is absolutely secure. However, this is the bit you should be praying. Yeah. And the issue of the conditions is they're not transactional. It's relationship. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. That's relationship. There's no action. It's just relationship. Then your paths get straight. We love God, make my paths straight. The paths of God are... You don't follow. So here's another one of those promises right here. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, two conditions, right? But both of them are relationship. If you live in me, if you love me, if you honor me and fear me and make me the center, then I come and live in you and love you and, and make you feel loved. When those two things get married, then you can ask whatever you want. See, we love going, you said I can ask whatever I want, and we go for it. Then we're crying three months later when nothing's happened. You cannot abide in him if you're not abiding in his word. And he says there, if you're, my words abide in you, now, what's happening if we fulfill those conditions, if we choose that kind of relationship? What's going on? Well, when it comes to asking things, we're going to know exactly who God is, exactly what he wants, exactly how he works. And when we ask, we're going to be asking his will, not ours, not what we think needs to happen, but who he is and what he wants. And so for the sake of of our joy, we have to obey. We have to obey. And so, tonight, I hope that you have found some solution to the problem of joy. It's not satisfying, but it's there. It really is there, and the secret is abiding, remaining, staying, enduring, persevering with Jesus. So let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your mercy. Wow, Lord Jesus, we thank you that when we abide in you, you abide in us. That when we abide in you, God, we will bear fruit because you are the vine. I pray for everyone here tonight who's realized that they're trying to force fruit out of their life, Lord God, who's so frustrated because they're trying so hard in their own strength. And I pray for those people tonight that they would learn to just abide that they would just let all the nutrients, all the life that you have flow into them and watch fruit grow. I pray for those of us who run away from pruning. <laughs> we don't like it, Lord. Tonight, may we catch a new, fresh understanding that that is your loving kindness over us, that that is you making us bigger than we ever imagined we could ever be. God, where we're feeling the pain of giving up our default systems, Show us that they're idols, Lord. Show us what they're actually costing us. Show us what they're hindering us from. 
and give us a fresh vision of you. You are so big. You are so beautiful. You are so good. There's so much life in you. Why would we draw identity from anything else? And Holy Spirit, give us grace to choose to shatter those idols before you, even if it takes time, God. We want to be branches that are grafted in and drinking deeply and richly of you. In Jesus' name.